twice now, as we've been going through Revelation verse by verse, we have heard an announcement of the fall of Babylon. The first one came in chapter 14, verse 8, where an angel flew through heaven saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 16, verse 9 from yesterday, or last week I should say, uh, also announced that God remembered to make Babylon drink the cup of the wrath of God Almighty. And in fact, several times, even if you leave Babylon by name out of it, the book of Revelation has announced the end, that the end has come. God's kingdom has come. And as I've said, structurally, what the book is now doing in these later chapters is laying out the context so that when it describes in detail that fall, you know what it means. I don't believe that this is indicative of what's called a cyclical interpretation of Revelation, that it's just saying the same thing over and over again. I think there is a, a flow, there's a through line, but... If we're going to discuss the fall of Babylon, we've got to know a little bit about Babylon in the, the context of Revelation. And today we're going to get our biggest informational dump from the prophet and evangelist and apostle John today. Now, this subject that we're going to get into, the nature of last day's Babylon, the identity perhaps of last day's Babylon, is one of the most widely debated passages in biblical eschatology, which means study of the last days. Uh, and people can get kind of nasty with each other when they discuss this, where it's not just you're wrong, but you're wrong and you're evil and you hate Jesus and you're probably going to hell. Well, there's no need for all of that. Uh, and I also find that there is a, a tendency for the modern day interpreter to look back at interpreters from previous generations and say, these guys were stupid and didn't know what they were talking about. They very clearly were interpreting this according to their own times. And then sometimes we turn around and accuse each other of doing the same thing. And sometimes that's fair enough. But I want to remind us of a biblical principle that specifically applies to this subject. And that is this, the principle of typology. And there's a, a whole length of discussion we could have about this. But as concerns the Antichrist, last days, Babylon, the end of the world, the Bible tells us that there is typology, meaning history, in a sense, will repeat until the end comes. That Satan is trying his level best to pull this off. And so there are going to be many versions of this until the ultimate one shows up. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, because if I make a statement like that, I better be able to back it up. Well, don't worry, I can. Paul said, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Paul says right now God is restraining Satan's attempts to take over the world. But one day God will remove restraint and allow it to happen. John, in his epistle, 1 John 2.18, says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So the same principle. John says, we know that one day a capital A Antichrist will come. In the meantime, there will be lots of little a Antichrists that are prefigurings or types is, a, is the word of what is going to happen. That Satan is trying and trying and trying. And it's, it's like trying to start a, a cold lawnmower. That it's going to rev up and it's going to rev up. Oh, is this it? Nope, that wasn't it until finally it catches and it starts. So knowing this, theologically, we believe that Babylon has come many times. 
a version of Babylon. And for that, I will say, interpreters of certain generations can be forgiven for identifying the Babylon of their day as the Babylon of the last days. And perhaps they should not have pushed it so hard as to say, this is definitely it. There were several things that the Bible had said that, of course, had not taken place yet. But I do want to point out that the similarities between various uh, forms of this last day's empire are not inconsequential. So when the early church pointed to the Roman Empire, or when people of the last generation pointed even to the Soviet Union, or whatever your, your uh, interpretation of choice are, people say, that's just so ridiculous. You're clearly just interpreting it according to your own times. Well, you're kind of supposed to do that. You need to not push it so far as to say the end has definitely come, but we are looking for versions of this that will come, that will have the same characteristics, but until the final capital E, end, comes, we're not going to know for certain. I'm simply trying to do this in order to open up the possibilities of interpretation and to be a little more charitable in how we approach this. Because I never want us to be so worried about being exactly right that we can't even do the work of Bible study and theology. So today we're going to look at this. There's a lot of information given in this chapter. We're going to try to gather a comprehensive view of what last day's Babylon will look like. Then we're going to move on, good Lord willing, <laughs> time permitting, uh, to look at some options, some potential scenarios of what this could look like. And then if we have a whole lot of time, at the very end I have one idea that I've been thinking through and praying through that... Uh, I think would be fun for us to consider. So if you really like studying last days, end times prophecy, this is your day. You're going to have a lot of fun. If you're not so interested in that, if you're a believer, you ought to be. Because these are the things that the Lord has revealed to us. So chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, not exactly a pleasant passage, but the Lord saw fit to put it in. So chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls, we just read about them in the last chapter, came and said to me, that is John, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Last time, in chapter 16, we saw the seven bowls. There have been three sequences of seven judgments in the book of Revelation. Seven seals, meaning opening up the scroll, which led to seven trumpets that were blown. And finally, seven bowls containing the wrath of God poured out on the earth. And the sixth bowl paved the way for Armageddon, for the assembly of the Antichrist end times army at Armageddon. And bowl number seven was the battle itself, which of course Jesus will win and Antichrist will lose. But it mentioned in the seventh bowl that Babylon itself was destroyed. And so this chapter and the following chapter are going to dive a little deeper into that subject and explain what is Babylon and 
what's it going to look like when it falls? So in this chapter, we're given an angelic, spiritual view of what that is. And this picture is indeed gruesome and not exactly family-friendly. In fact, when I was typing up this manuscript last night, and I typed my title, The Horror of Babylon, Spellcheck gave me a little notification and said, some of your readers may find this word to be offensive. <laughs> now, first of all, I'm not interested in what Spellcheck's opinion is on my Bible studies that I'm putting together. But secondly, that's kind of the point. You're supposed to read this and be a little uncomfortable and a little turned off and think to yourself, maybe I shouldn't let the kids read this unsupervised. It's supposed to be gruesome and horrific and godless because that is exactly what we're seeing. He sees what the angel calls the great prostitute, harlot, whore, you know the word, sitting on a scarlet beast. And this beast is red with seven heads and ten horns. And we're going to look at that in more detail in a little later. But she's called the great prostitute, the great harlot. She's lavishly adorned. She's got a cup of abominations upon which the kings of the earth are drunk. And it clarifies later that those abominations, while I'm sure it represents many things, one of them at least is the blood of the saints of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 gives her a name of mystery. Some translations take that word mystery and they attach it to her name. It is more properly translated. It is a name of mystery, meaning a mysterious name or a name that has been concealed or hidden until it is finally unveiled. And that name is Babylon the Great. She's called the mother of wickedness. So this is why we get such a gruesome picture here. Now, trying to figure out what this represents is a little tricky at first, but if you know your Old Testament, it's, it's not simple, I'll say, but it certainly gives you some guidelines to follow. The first place I always think of is Zechariah chapter 5. If you want to go look at this on your own, Zechariah 5, verses 5 through 11, the prophet has a vision of a basket. And the angel says, open up the basket. And he opens it up, and there's a woman named Wickedness in the basket. And the angel slams the lid back down on this basket. And two angels carry this basket away to Shinar, which is where Babylon, the plain where Babylon was built. And they said, we're carrying this away. And there's going to be a statue built with her as their foundation. But that at, that at least refers to the Babylon of his day. It could have reference to the last days, but it, it's just an interesting comparison to have that John or the angel that's revealing this to John may be taking, I don't know if inspiration is the right word, but referring back to this picture that's already been seen, which is Babylon has been built on wickedness and they compare it to a woman. But broader than that, I think more significant, harlotry, prostitution is a familiar image in scripture. And that is the meaning that you're intended to draw from this here. Spiritual unfaithfulness is compared to prostitution in the Bible. If you are unfaithful to God, especially concerning idolatry, the Bible compares various cities and nations, especially Israel, to whores. That you are whoring after the gods of the Canaanites or the Assyrians. There's a million passages I could read with these comparisons. Ezekiel in particular has some rather graphic descriptions. So does Jeremiah. But the one that I'll give you here, Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. 
tells us, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. She says, go marry a prostitute. She's going to cheat on you and have kids that are not yours. Why? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He's comparing and using the life of this prophet and his marriage as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. So this great mother of prostitutes, there's a sexual component to it, but it's really more a spiritual understanding here. She is a point of spiritual debauchery, persecution, immorality for the whole world. That she is the, the root cause, it would seem, or at least represents the root cause of all the world's idolatries and false religion. And her mysterious name is Babylon. Now, there's two different places in the Bible that we could look back to here. They're probably both in play to one degree or another. Uh, the first one is Babel itself, the Tower of Babel. Remember, in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, I'm sure you know the story. It says, the whole earth after the flood, right after the flood, before Abraham, before all that, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, Shinar, where Babylon would be built, and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You know the story. God goes down, confuses their languages. They have to abandon the building of the tower and that's a picture of the rebellion of mankind that had already begun even that quickly after the flood. So that takes us back to the first city that the Bible records. It doesn't have to be the first city ever built, but it's, it certainly is one of the candidates, and it's the first one the Bible talks about. The rebellion against God. And it could be a call back to this, and that's probably what's intended, that she is, in a sense, the spirit of Babel returned in the last days. That what they were doing at the Tower of Babel has continued throughout history in various forms and empires and religions. And it's going to really come to a head in the last days when people want to cast off God and build something for themselves. Now, I want to take a little note here. I am uh, not perhaps in the majority position when I say this, but I've looked into it a little bit and I feel confident in saying this. The amount of speculation about what happened at the Tower of Babel has simply gotten out of hand. There are people that will stand up and tell you quite confidently exactly what they were doing at the Tower of Babel, what the religion looked like, what the symbols looked like. None of that is in the Bible. They'll tell you, well, there was Nimrod is the one that was in charge of building the Tower of Babel. And he had this wife named Semiramis. And together they created this first religion. And she was the, the first uh, mother of abominations. None of that is in the Bible. It goes back to a book by a guy named Alexander Hislop in the 1800s, a book called The Two Babylons. He was trying to prove that modern-day Catholicism was taking its inspiration directly from the Tower of Babel. He pulls from traditions that at the earliest are post-Christ. They come after Jesus. Perhaps some of it goes back to the intertestamental period. Um, there are Bible teachers that I greatly admire that just sort of pick this stuff up when it's in the air, but it disturbs me a little bit because none of it's in the Bible. 
And if you go back to where he gets a lot of these things and what his interpretation looks like, it's, it's sloppy exegesis, it's myth, it's conspiracy, and I, I quite frankly have no time for it. So better men than me have got, found an interest in it. I feel like the Bible gives us plenty to be worried about and plenty to concern ourselves with without looking into this strange stuff. So if you're ever online or you're hearing some guy talk about, well, this is what went down in Babel, and you open up your book to Genesis, and you're like, I don't see any of that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? So uh, I just want to throw that out there. I'm not going to get into that because I'm not convinced by it. Not even a little bit. Um, some of you might be, might be familiar with some of that. That's fine. But I'd rather look at what the scripture says and stick with that. Well, anyway, the second referent here to the mystery, to Babylon, is, of course, the Babylonian Empire, which the Empire of Babylon grew up in the plain of Shinar, where Babel, the Tower of Babel, had been built. It's intended to be a uh, comparison to be drawn. And this is the empire that exiled Judah in 586 B.C., Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel was talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, we went through the book of Daniel verse by verse, you'll remember this, he gives a description of what Babylon was, what it represented in cosmic and spiritual terms. Speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. Can you see where some of these doxologies for Jesus are given? They come from what was falsely ascribed to the king of Babylon, but they really belong to who? Jesus, right? And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Babylon is held up in the Bible as the empire. The empire par excellence. Not quite sure what that means, but it sounds fancy, doesn't it? The ultimate empire. At least in a political sense, this would make this woman the heiress of Babylon's idolatrous tyranny. So, let's get a summary statement here. Looking back to Babel, looking back to Babylon, and some of the things this passage tells us, the best way to understand what this woman represents is the spiritual rot at the heart of any empire that comes in the tradition of Babylon, that raises itself not just to be a great nation, but to specifically stand in defiance of the living God and in opposition to his people and which will characterize the last day's Babylon most of all. So, if we look at this, to know a little bit about her, if we know this is representing more or less a spiritual or even religious system, this whore, what does she represent? There's five characteristics, five things I want to point out here that we pull from this. So, if she represents what Babylon and even the Tower of Babel was, come again in the last days, a form of religion, what does this look like? Number one, she represents sacrilege. I mean, even by the comparison of calling her a spiritual harlot who stumbles all the nations with blasphemy and idolatry and abominations, this is not just sin. This is by just about every uh, interpreter you'll read, and I agree with them, this is a wicked religious system. That when Babylon rises, there will be a spiritual component, a religious component to it. And it will be the ultimate mother of abominations. Second, she represents materialism. You can see that. The consort of kings, they call her. Purple and scarlet, which were royal colors. They were expensive. You couldn't just get them anywhere. Precious stones, gold and silver. And this excess of wine and drunkenness that... There, this system, this religious spiritual system will be characterized by riches and luxury. That is not a 
<laughs> a system of self-control, of trying to be the best you. It's, it's hedonistic. It's do whatever you want, get as rich as you want, enjoy yourself as much as you can. Number three, she represents persecution. It says she is drunk with the blood of the saints. And she brings other nations along with her. You can see that, that these other nations that have been persecuting God's people, they're brought along because they are seduced by this woman. Y'all know that if a man comes across the wrong woman, she can lead him into a place that he never wanted to go. And that is, in effect, what is going to happen in these last days. When she comes around, and when she has come around throughout history, God's people are hunted. Fourth thing we get some clues as to her identity here. It says she sits on the waters and in the wilderness. That perhaps gives us a clue about where this thing is going to take root. It's at least symbolic, but there are some people who believe that it might be giving us a key to the location of where she'll be. More on that in a minute. Number two, she has global influence. So this is not going to be some niche thing that we're all going to band together and fight. No, it's, it's going to be very deceptive. Number three, closely tied to the Antichrist. She's riding the beast the system of Babylon, Antichrist himself, and she is identified as Babylon. So when other things are identified as Babylon too, we realize that they're connected. So you got these clues here to help us ponder what her identity might be in the last days, and also to identify anything that might be acting out her example in our own day. Number five, the fifth thing about her, she is impressive. John marveled greatly. We're going to see he's going to get in trouble with that angel in the next verse for that. Wow. This marveling. This is what they said. The word is thalmazo. It's what they said when Jesus would do a miracle and said, and all the people marveled. They were astonished. And John is astonished. Many will marvel at the beast and the dragon we've read. And also now at this horror. Now this is no joke. We're, not, we're talking about this evil system and we can start to think, well, I would never want anything to do with that. Well, good. I hope you wouldn't. But we need to recognize how deceptive and impressive this thing is going to be when it comes. To sum up, Imperial Babylon is going to have a spiritual and religious component that will deceive the whole world. Verse 18 is going to specify that she is a city. But these characteristics that we just read describe harlotry, which is spiritual unfaithfulness. So we're going to call this piece of it the religious system of Babylon. And we'll come back to it. Not a pretty sight. Verse 7 now, let's keep going. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? <laughs> kind of, how dare you, you might hear in that tone. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel. So he's saying, don't be like them to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. Say amen. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings." 
And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So this, this angel chides Daniel a little bit. He says, she's not that great. Let me explain to you what this is. And he starts with the scarlet beast. So we'll come back to this woman. But this is a beast with seven heads and ten horns. That should be familiar to you because we've seen this monstrosity a couple times. In chapter 12, verse 3, the dragon, who it just straight out tells us is Satan, is a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Then in chapter 13, verse 1, when the beast comes out of the sea, it is seven heads and ten horns. So knowing what we know about those passages will help us interpret this one, as will the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, the Lord gives Daniel images and visions of monsters that represent empires that are to come. So this is the same symbolism here. It's explained in Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. It's the same reference, I believe. So this passage will help us interpret the one we're in. He says, as for the fourth beast, which he says was terrible and worse than all the others, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, this one also had ten horns, you see. Out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three of those kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So in that passage, the final Antichrist empire is ten kings that give way to one dictator at the expense of three of those kings. That it'll destroy the world, it'll persecute the saints, for three and a half years, which we've already looked at this in Revelation several times. And the angel explains for us here in Revelation 17, the seven heads are seven mountains, which are seven kings, the beast himself being an eighth king. And the ten horns representing those ten kings who give their power over to the beast. So we've got several clues as to the nature of this, this symbol to help us identify it. First thing, Looking back to Daniel, looking back to what we've seen in Revelation already, it's pretty clear that this beast represents an empire. It represents a nation that is going to rise. It's powerful. It's authoritative. It's like the ones that have gone before it. This is the political system that will sustain that false religious spiritual rot that is represented by this woman. She comes riding in on the back of this empire in the last days. So we're talking about a kingdom here. I know this can be kind of dense and opaque to work through, but once we kind of see what we're dealing with, it paints a, a pretty terrifying picture. Second, we see that it is a revived empire. This is something that has been and is going to be again. And this is part of what we see in Revelation 13, that people will marvel at the fact that this beast was dead and now it's back that this is a revived empire, that the beast himself, this eighth beast, belongs to number seven, that he's tied to this, this other empire. So, like it says in Daniel chapter two, that the feet of that statue were of iron and clay. Remember, this is a different picture, but it's predicting the same thing. Empires to come, starting with the golden head, which was Babylon, the silver arms and chest, which was uh, Persia, then the bronze torso, which was the, uh, or yeah, the bronze torso, which was Greece, then the iron legs, and then the feet of iron and clay, with ten toes, by the way, ten toes, ten horns, representing this last empire, that it is 
part iron and part something else. It is a revival of what has come before. So this last day's empire that comes will be a revival of something that has already come, which is part of the reason people will marvel to see it. Number three, it is a coalition empire. You have 10 kings who are going to band together and will eventually hand their power over to this beast. Although Daniel 7 explains that three of them will resist and eventually be put down by that Antichrist as part of the way he uh, consolidates his power. Fourth, this is also very impressive. The whole world is marveling at him. Everybody's going to go after this thing. It's not going to be a brave, bold resistance. It's going to be deception and lies. Unless they are spiritually protected by the Lord by having their names written in the Lamb's book of life, which is, it's either Jesus or Antichrist. You have no real option beyond that. But there's, impressive, there's an impressive nature to it. There's grandeur. There's power to this last day's empire. Fifth, however, and this is our favorite one, it is a doomed empire. They're going down. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. That's what's going to happen. You want to make war on Jesus, you deserve everything you get, friend. And this is not spiritual symbolism either. We, we talked about Armageddon. We're going to talk about it again in chapter 19. They're going to see Jesus come riding out of heaven, and they're not going to say, oh no, what have we done? They're going to say, form up and charge. Foolishness, isn't it? That's why it says in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain things? He who sits in the heaven, what? Laughs. Really? You're going to charge the risen Lord Jesus who spun the universe into existence with tanks and missiles or maybe even horses and swords? Remember, this planet's been pretty devastated by now, so who knows what weapons they're using. Nobody stands against Jesus. He is the King of Kings. It goes without saying also that all of the characteristics of this woman apply to the beast. Persecution, debauchery, sexual immorality. So what do we have here? What is John seeing foreshadowed? If you're not following all the details, let me just sum it up for you right now, okay? That there will be, in the end of days, a worldwide coalition empire, the final form of which has come before. Incredibly mighty, incredibly powerful, with a blasphemous arrogance against Jesus Christ. And they will bring with them a spiritual and religious system of idolatry, that will deceive the whole world. Verse 15 through 18, let's finish the chapter. And the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the angel finishes the vision here. And remember, all of this is to explain what it means when we say Babylon is fallen. It's what we've been building up to for many chapters now. We'll look at it in great detail in chapter 18, which describes the reaction of the world. What do we learn about this, this Babylon, this, this fall that is about to happen? Well, first of all, by emphasizing the, the nations and the multitudes by the waters, this is a worldwide tyranny. At the very least, this is a broad international dominion. 
It is going to be so widespread that you can call it a global empire, a worldwide empire. There are some that think it doesn't necessarily have to cover like every country on the globe. Although there are others that say the tools that are available now make such a thing actually possible. The very least, it's going everywhere. Nobody's going to be spared. The second, the destruction of the whore of the city comes through treachery. Now, we read in chapter 16 and elsewhere that God will destroy Babylon. But these verses 16 and 17 tell us that the tool God will use to destroy this harlot is the empire itself. God will rise up the beast to destroy the prostitute. This gets missed an awful lot when you're doing end time study. Because the beast, the antichrist, the, the tyrant, the dictator of the whole world hates that woman and everything that she represents. He hates that religion, that spirituality, even if it is false, idolatrous spirituality. Why? Well, because we know the Antichrist wants nobody worshiping anything or anyone other than himself. And third, we see this woman is a city. This is the other piece that gets ignored very often. We know that this woman represents the spiritual aspect of this final empire, but all of that that she represents is bound up and characterized and typified by the capital city. The wicked Babylonian spiritual system will be tied to a city, and the name of that city is mysteriously Babylon. So, we have the Political and the spiritual components of this last day's empire. And the spiritual or religious system will be seated in one capital city. And it will lead to the day where the empire will turn against the religious aspect of it and destroy it. Represented by the destruction of his own capital city. Now trying to figure out what this is going to look like. When does this happen in the timeline? I think is one of the more difficult parts of Bible prophecy. We'll look at that next time. But we do know there will be enmity between the system and the empire. Murderous enmity. The empire emperor will order the destruction of his own capital city. Isn't that interesting? Because of the religion that is being perpetuated there. The harlotry there. And he's going to be used by God to execute his own wrath on that city. So here are the pieces of the puzzle we're given. There's an empire. There's a system or a religion. I, I, I hesitate to call it a specifically a religion. It is a spiritual system, and I think religion can fall under the umbrella of that. But number three, there is a city to be destroyed. An empire, a system, and a city. And that's what this passage is talking about. And we ought to beware of any city or system or empire that kind of sort of fits these descriptions. Not because we think, oh no, the end has come, but because you don't want anything to do with that. You want to be standing with Jesus, with your name written in the book of life. But we're going to take some time. We have time. <laughs> and we're going to take the time to examine some options of what these things might be representing. Based on our biblical criteria, who is this empire? What is this system? And which city are we talking about here? I believe the Bible gives us an awful lot of information to work with. There are a lot of different views. I'm going to give to you as many as I can, some of which I think have a lot to say for them, and some of which I don't think have anything to say for them, but they're said by enough people, I'm going to put them out for you. So let's see if we can do this. Let's start by looking at this empire. I think this is the, the, this is the narrowest option, and pretty much everything else is going to depend on how you do this. What is this final last day's empire? 
What is it? Well, the first option, some speculate that this is actually Israel. That it's going to be, and yes, I heard some, some questioning noises just now. Yeah, me too. Uh, that this is going to be an Israeli empire. That the reason they say is, number one, well, it says spiritual harlotry. You can't commit spiritual adultery unless you already know the Lord. So this only applies to, to Israel or to the Jews, shall we say. Uh, they also refer to Daniel 11.37, when it says the Antichrist will have no regard for the gods of his fathers. And they'll say, well, the fathers in the Old Testament almost always refers to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right? And the other option is, other reason given is that the Jew, only a Jew could make peace in Israel, which the Antichrist will do in Daniel 9.27. Well, that seems plausible at first until we see the overwhelming Gentile nature of this kingdom. He arises out of the sea, which is a, a picture of the nations. Especially when you see that it is Israel and the Jews that are being harassed by this empire. It's going to be the chastening of Israel by these nations. You look at the typology of Antiochus Epiphanes, who uh, tormented the Jews and defiled the temple. It's going to be like that. Nahum chapter 3, among other passages, accuses Nineveh of spiritual harlotry. So it doesn't have to be Israel. I don't think this is a great option. Second one, view this as a European or Western empire, Western culture more broadly. They say, why? Well, because they, the Roman Empire, which we believe will be revived, many people believe that, the ancestors of Rome are now the Western countries. Uh, Europe and the United States, uh, they look back to Rome as kind of the beginning of their civilization. That's Western culture. They say, what about Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire that he had for a rather long time? They say there are already plans to unite Europe into one coalition empire. That's the European Union, right? They're going to have one currency and, and all that. Well, it's as hard to push back as hard on this one as I did on the others because if you do not know this, one of Hitler's goals was to set up the Third Reich. Why is it called the Third Reich? There's Hitler's Reich. The one that came before that, what was the first Reich? It was the Holy Roman Empire. It was Charlemagne. He said, we're going to rebuild what Charlemagne did, the continuation. So you see this picture we have here. They used to carry what were based upon Roman battle standards in their parades because they were intending to be a, a renewed Rome. And Hitler certainly hated the Jews and certainly tried to take over the world. Certainly shed the blood of the saints. He did that. So that is one possibility. However, I do think this tends to be a more self-centered view of prophecy, meaning we're kind of looking to ourselves a little too much rather than looking to what the Bible says. It completely depends on a Western culture equals Rome. And I think that's the weakest point, and that it all falls apart without that. So a few too many leaps of faith, although I will show you something later that might make this seem a little more plausible to you. So... Here's the third one, and this is the most popular by far. View this as a Roman Empire, a revived Rome. Why? Because number one, when John was writing, Rome was the empire. All the church fathers, when they were writing about this empire in, in the last days, they saw it as Rome because Rome was around. 17 verse 9 tells us that the woman is seated on seven hills, seven mountains. Roman was, Rome was famously known as the city of seven hills. So also is Lynchburg, Virginia, where I grew up, by the way. And I'm like, maybe we don't want to have that. We certainly have more than seven hills, I can tell you that much. 
We also know that Rome was the empire that destroyed the temple. And Daniel 9.26 says that the people of the prince who is to come, that's the Antichrist, will destroy the sanctuary. To put it in plain English, it says whoever destroys the temple after Jesus is crucified, that's the empire that's going to rise again with the Antichrist in the last days. That seems pretty tight. And this is why most prophecy teachers believe that today. Here are the difficulties with this view, and there are some. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, when it talks about the, the statue, right? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay. It's talking about nations, empires that would succeed Babylon. Rome, very famously, never conquered Babylon. They held it with a, a garrison of soldiers for, I believe it was a matter of weeks or maybe a month or two before they said, this is an untenable position, we can't hold it, and they withdrew. So that would make the prophecy made to Nebuchadnezzar seem to hold a little less weight. Many people want to point out that Rome is not a mighty power today, which doesn't mean a whole lot to me because if it's been prophesied, it doesn't really matter what it looks like now. Israel was not in their land for thousands of years either, and we know what happened later. Also, my opinion, many of the Middle Eastern characteristics of all these prophecies start to fall flat. When you talk about the nations that will ravage Israel in the last days, it's Edom, Syria, Egypt, Libya, places like that. And that's not Rome. Although if Rome has taken over the whole world, that would certainly apply. So that's a really good option. Here's another option that just I just can't shake this one, you guys. Uh, this is a minority view who sees a renewed Islamic caliphate. As the, as the last empire. Why? Because the caliphate did succeed Babylon. I've got a map that I want to show you here. Uh, that's how much the Islamic empire covered at its peak. That's up into Spain. That's all of North Africa, the entire Arabian Peninsula, going all the way into Pakistan, uh, up towards uh, almost into Greece, modern-day Turkey. That is the nation that actually covers the territory that Babylon ruled. Rome never did. Rome had a little circle around the Mediterranean Sea, but the, the caliphate was bigger, so that's something to consider. Number two, here's another reason. This prophecy of the seven heads. It says these seven heads are the kings that have come before this. And it says five were, one is, one is still to come. Okay, what are the five that were? What are the five great world empires that harassed Israel, which is typically the criteria given? Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece. One is. What was the one that was at the time John was writing? Rome. One has not yet come. So it would seem that you need to have another empire that is going to come after this, and that when the eighth, which is the Antichrist's final empire, comes, he will come from that seventh empire. So if you're going to do this according to the traditional way of looking at it, you have to say, you have those five, and then Rome, 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 which seems... Less persuasive to me. If you say, okay, what great empire ravaged not only Israel, but Babylon, the territory of Babylon, after Rome, there's only one answer. And it was the Islamic Caliphate, the Ottoman Empire, another way of looking at it. There's another reason. All the nations in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog and Magog invasion, all of them are Islamic nations today. Every single one. They come from Turkey, north and south, all the way around into North Africa, not only that, but number four, Islamic eschatology is specifically waiting for a Mahdi, their Messiah, to come, raise up an army, restore the caliphate, 
conquer the globe. They will have a prophet who will go before him doing miraculous signs, who they say will be Jesus come back to earth. They don't believe Jesus ever died. In the last days. That's what ISIS was trying to do. ISIS was trying to establish this caliphate so that Mahdi could come. Now, thankfully, they seem to have lost steam in the last few years. I'm grateful for that. But I, I, I have a hard time just casting this aside as many do. Here are the weak points. Number one, relying on Islamic tradition as opposed to the Bible is kind of dicey. <laughs> if, if it fits, that's one thing. But I'm not going to go and say, well, they say this, therefore the Bible must mean that. Number two, well, what about that thing about the people of the Antichrist will destroy the temple? That's a big deal. And that's also the weakest point, I believe, of this, of this argument. But here is the answer that is given. According to Titus, the general who sacked Jerusalem in AD 70, the Roman general, and according to Josephus, the historian from around that time, they both specify that the orders given to the Roman soldiers were to take Jerusalem, but not to destroy the sanctuary. This is what Rome typically did. They left the culture intact as long as you paid taxes to Rome, more or less. But according to both Josephus and General Titus, the conscripts that they had brought up, the Roman legions were not all Italian. Most of them were trained up from the nations they had conquered. So the conscripts they were using were from Syria, Edom, places like that, that when they were given the chance to attack Jerusalem, the Roman generals were unable to restrain them, and they, in their zeal and hatred of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple without permission. Now, that's history. It's not Bible, which makes it a little less certain for me. But it certainly is an answer to that question. But also, you, you absolutely have historical opinion weighed against you. You had a couple men when the, the Ottomans were taking over Christendom around the Crusades and so on that believed this view. But today, it's, it's certainly a minority view. But I believe it's worth a hearing. So I think Rome and Islam are your best options. I think maybe some kind of hybrid would be possible. We could talk about that later. But every one of these systems could be, and perhaps even has been, an antichrist before. A version of Babylon, as we talked about at the beginning. So you got to study and be ready. Okay, so that's the empire. Can we do this? Let's see. We're in it now. There's no point in stopping. So. Now then, so based on these options, which system is this? So who is the harlot? Who is the whore of Babylon? What is this religious, spiritual system going to be? And how you interpret this is largely going to be based on how you interpret the empire. But let's look into these options. First, I would just suggest plain paganism. That it might not be anything that we can specifically identify now. There's just going to be a return to worshiping the created things, to worshiping ancestors, to worshiping animals. That idolatry will rise again. Neo-paganism is already on the rise in the United States. It's a problem for the Christians in the prisons that so many guys are going after Odinism and such things. Idolatry is obviously part and parcel of what the Antichrist kingdom will be. Problems are, this makes the system rather nonspecific, and I don't know of anybody that is aggressively arguing for this. So at the very least, it'll be some kind of idolatry, but there is always the possibility we just don't know what it is, and it will be something like that. Number two... Another, I think, weak option. Some look to Judaism as the system that is going to oppress the world. Again, keying in on the spiritual adultery, the desolation of the temple. Who else will have permission to desecrate the temple than a Jewish antichrist? However, the entire system is the oppression of the Jews. 
And then people will try to say, well, no, these are faithful Christian Jews, and the, the wicked Antichrist Jews will come after them. I don't think that the, this text lends itself to that at all. I also do not care for how quickly this conversation turns very anti-Semitic when you have these conversations with people. When you're talking, they say, and you know what they're like. It's like, all right, pal. <laughs> we were talking about the Bible, and now we've got all your, your theories, and I'm not interested in that. I just want to know what the Bible says. Number three, apostate Christianity. This is another option. It is a very clear from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 3, pretty much all of Revelation, that the last days are going to be characterized by a widespread apostasy in the church, especially if you believe, as we do, in the rapture, that the church that remains will be those that have not truly believed. However, this is also very nonspecific. Um, there is another version of this that I'll get into in a second that I think is more persuasive. But also, it's, it's drunk with the blood of the saints and kind of always has been drunk with the blood of the saints. I don't know if that could even characterize you know, the, the worst church that you see. So I, I not, I'm not a big fan of that option until you begin to look at this specifically. Fourth option, Roman Catholicism specifically. This has been the view in most churches from the time of the Reformation until about the 18 or 1900s. What are the advantages of looking at this as not just all Christians everywhere, but specifically Rome? Well, it ties the system to Rome again. If we're looking at a revived empire that will have a religious system that will terrorize the world, if you're looking at a revived Rome, if that were to happen today, well, you've got it already set up. So it has that going for it. Such people will emphasize the veneration, the idolatrous veneration of Mary as representative of the harlot of the last days. The reformers held to this position. Of course they did, because Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all these guys, they were being persecuted, burned at the stake, going through the Inquisition, being pulled apart, broken on the wheels, broken on the rack by the Catholic Church. And I think at the very least, you can say that it was an antichrist of the time, and it certainly was not representative of what the gospel was. I think that it certainly was an opinion of its time. It's, it's in one sense now, it's, especially after Vatican II, it's harder to say this is definitely going to be it. But as I was talking with Zach about this option the other day, Rome is getting woker and weirder. Just weird, strange things coming through. And if this doesn't happen, in, okay, in the next five years, it doesn't make sense, but fast forward 50, fast forward 500, who knows what this could be. There would be a certain terrible poetry if that is what ended up happening. Number five, this is the uh, Tim LaHaye option, humanism, some sort of self-centered, secular, new agey type religion that will rise up. Uh, this has been a problem and was a problem for the previous generation of the church. Even uh, atheistic communism could fall into this, that it was not so much a religion, but it was a belief system. And if you didn't believe it, you went to the gulag and you got killed. Don't ever fall for that, by the way. Many, many of your Christian brothers and sisters were tortured, killed, and persecuted under that system. This does seem to be the religion of those that are into more of this globalist kind of thing. It's kind of this non-religion, worship yourself sort of thing. Uh, but it does seem a little tame compared to some of the other options, I think, here. And sixth, of course, you know we were going here. Uh, if you believe in a revived Islamic caliphate, then the worldwide religion system that is going to come at the end is Islam. Muslims are idolaters. They represent many nations around the world that abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ for a false god. 
They go every, every year, they take Hajj, they go to Mecca, they circumambulate what's called the Kaaba, they touch a, a black stone that they believe will forgive their sins. They believe that persecution of Jews and Christians are virtues. They have a belief, of course, you know of in jihad. The rulers of the Islamic nations are known for their lavish lifestyles, their lavish hypocrisy. I also reemphasize the fact that Islam itself is looking for a day when Mahdi will come and finally deal with all of these Jews and Christians and get them out of there. However, this is a fringe position. It's dependent upon an Islamic Antichrist. But there would be a certain poetry to the sons of Ishmael rising up against the sons of Jacob in the last days. I think our best options are probably some virulent form of Catholicism or Islam. Uh, imagine these systems without any of the restraint of the Holy Spirit. With all the Christians raptured, what would become of these things? I would not rule out some kind of neo-pagan humanist revival, um, but it's harder to say. It really depends on what you believe the system is going to be. And last thing to look at here, the city. And this is where people speak very confidently on something they should not speak so confidently on. What are the potential cities that could house this terrible religious, religious system and this empire? Here's one option that I, I really don't think is a good one, guys. But you hear a lot of concerned patriots talking about New York or your American city of choice as last day's Babylon. This is dependent on that view I described earlier, that Western culture is the descendant of the Roman Empire, which again, I think is plausible, but once you start to get to the United States, you really start to stretch it, you know what I mean? Now, I'm not going to minimize our own sins and our own problems. Have you seen this thing? This is a statue that they put up in, in New York. I believe this is in Central Park. It's to honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg, women and abortion. And the statue is made to look like an ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern goddess. If you can't see the very well, it's, it's got horns, it's got these weird tentacles for arms, it's like floating above the ground, very intentionally taking inspiration from idolatry. Now, I'm not, it's not an idol, people don't come and worship, but it is just weird. You know what I'm saying? And you look at stuff like this and you see the things that people are pushing, and like, well, if you want people to think that you're not last day's Babylon, you gotta stop doing stuff like this. Why some church hasn't come and just torn that thing down yet, I don't know. But here's the, here's the big difficulty with this, though. The United States has never persecuted the church. There have been fringe instances where preachers were imprisoned. You can look to some of the things that went down in the pandemic, perhaps. But America is not drunk with the blood of the saints. And praise God for that. Right? Some people, it's like they get disappointed if like, their country is not last day's Babylon. And there are so many godly people that are gathered today to worship Jesus Christ in our own country that are praying for revival and striving for revival. So if you want to know where America is in the Bible, well, we're right there in verse 15 when it says the waters are nations. We're a nation. That's about it, you guys. We're not in there. Okay. Neither is Australia. Neither is, I don't know, Mongolia. Just we're not that special. It's okay. I'm quite all right to not be listed in this passage, to be honest. Okay, second, many specifically finger Brussels, which is the capital of the European Union, or whatever European city would fit the bill for the European Union. I've already looked at this. This again looks at Europe as the revival of the Roman Empire. Um, 
Normally, I would just say, okay, it's interesting. They are going for a one-world currency. They are, you know, trying to bring all these nations together as one. There has been some resistance to that, as you have seen from some of the Eastern European countries, Brexit, things like that. Um, but if they really didn't want us to think this, then they shouldn't have built what we're going to show you in this picture here. This is the, uh, this is the European Union building in Strasbourg. They specifically built that building to look like the ancient pictures of the Tower of Babel. Because what they said was, we are going to do what they tried to do at Babel, bring all the world together, except we're going to finish the job. And that statue that's in the corner there, that is what you see at the front of it. It is a statue of a woman riding a beast. They did that on purpose. So if you didn't want to be included in some wacky Alabama preacher's Bible study, you shouldn't have done that. So we watch closely. We watch closely to see what might come of that. The third option is Jerusalem. Boy, is there a lot to say for this one. It's, it's, I've been at times where I'm almost like the Roman official Paul speaks to. He says, you almost persuade me. This is a close one. We know this is Armageddon's target. We know that an earthquake will ravage both of them when Jesus returns. And we know that this is where the image of the Antichrist will be set up. I mean, even right now, you've got the Al-Aqsa Mosque sitting on the Temple Mount. That Jerusalem, you might say, is already functioning as a, as a haven of idolatry for many, many people in the world. However, here's the big, big problem with this that I just can't get on board with. Jesus Christ is going to reign from Jerusalem. He's going to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, whereas the prophecies of Babylon say it will be destroyed and never rebuilt again. The only person that's going to be living there are rats and owls, it says. So, I don't know if you can say that one. Number fourth, if you're going to hold to an Islamic Antichrist theory, guys will hold up Mecca, or again, some other equivalent Islamic city at the time. Once again, Mecca is already home to vast idolatry. This is a picture of the Hajj. That giant cube is the last piece of paganism that Muhammad left at Mecca. Every year they come and they circumambulate it. They walk around it and then they come forward and they touch a black stone at its base, which they believe will take away all their sins. They say this stone used to be white, but because so many Muslims have touched it, it's drawn out all of their sins. They also believe, you ready for this, if you know your Bible, that in the last days when Mahdi comes on Judgment Day, that stone will come to life and begin to speak and tell people that what sins they have committed. So again, there you go. Uh, we know that Saudi Arabia, where Mecca is, is known for its luxury, for its persecution. Their worldwide influence is only growing. Saudi Arabia is the number one lobbyist in the United States of America. Did you know that? They're already building vast cities and building them quickly. However, I think this is a weaker option when you consider some of these other things. Uh, but if you wanted to throw some possibilities in there, Istanbul, Medina, other Muslim cities, any other capital has been put forward perhaps. Number five, we're going to finish here, is Rome. Obviously, we're talking about a revived Roman Empire. You would look, at, look to Rome. It is certainly the city of seven hills. It is the home to worldwide Christianity. It was a Babylon in its day. Remember how we talked about the small A Antichrist and the big A Antichrist? If you want to have little B Babylon and capital B Babylon, it was at least lowercase Babylon. It was a persecutor of the church. The idolatry was everywhere. They set Christians on fire and fed them to lions. They scraped the skin off their bodies and stole their families away and crucified them. Perhaps it could become that city once more. 
Sixth option, and this is, I think, the best one, is just Babylon. <laughs> that the city, Babylon, will be rebuilt. What's an immediate weak point? Well, then why is it said mystery Babylon? What's the mystery there if Babylon is just Babylon? I think that might be the mystery. Would the world marvel more at a revived Rome or if Babylon was rebuilt and became the center of worldwide government? There's enough oil money to build it. Consider how fast cities like Dubai in the middle of the desert have become world economic centers. Right out of the desert. I've, I've flown through Dubai before. It's an it's amazing city and then desert everywhere else. So the idea that we can't have Babylon because it's been destroyed and it's in the wilderness, well... Zechariah 5 mentions Shinar, right? And it certainly would have some poetry to it if final Babylon was Babylon. The Islamic Antichrist theorist, if you're into that view, I think you ought to take a serious look in that direction, in my humble opinion. The city you choose is largely going to be based on which empire you select. And I, I would favor either a revived Islamic caliphate or the Roman Empire revived itself. I'm going to... I'm going to take, take us off here. We'll end now. I have another piece that I wanted to get into, but we'll save that for next time. Um, you start to get into this, and you very quickly run into people who will say something like, y'all are just speculating now. Y'all are just coming up with possibilities. Y'all are just, just thinking about the most wild things and putting it out, out there. Well, I did mention some that I think fall into that category. But I want to remind you of, of one story before we close out. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, when the wise men came into Jerusalem, they asked King Herod, where is he who has been born Messiah, King of the Jews? Herod calls up the scribes and he says, hey, where is Messiah going to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, for it says in the book of Micah, and they quote the prophecy. Some people say, how do you expect to know what's going to happen in the last days if they didn't know what happened when Jesus came the first time? You have to remember that Jesus rebuked the people for not knowing Remember the road to Emmaus? He said to these men, you, you slow people. You foolish, slow to believe all that the prophets have said. Shouldn't we have believed this was going to happen? When he showed up on Palm Sunday, he said, if only you had known on this your day. It's like, you should have been ready for this. But they weren't. I want to remind you that we are obligated to search these things out and try our best to understand and I also want to remind you at the end here of what we said at the beginning of the concept of typology. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There have been many antichrists. So you will come across throughout history various options that seem to fit the bill. Two things. Number one, recognize that for what it is. Don't get upset at those that start sounding the alarm on various things because we're supposed to look out for those that are like what is described here, at the very least, so that we can beware of them. But secondly, don't get carried away and assume that what you think has to be the one. For example, many people blast dispensational theologians because they said, y'all were just worried about communism in Russia, and that's why you believe that it had to be like this. Well, if you look at history, the USSR was an antichrist. It was a worldwide system that was oppressing the church and eradicating religion and taking over the Orthodox Church. But it was not the Antichrist. It was not the beast. It was not capital B, Babylon. But it was one of those things. It was a version. It was a foreshadowing of what that's going to look like. So I'm trying to teach us to be a little more charitable with our various interpretations and opinions. Take the time to investigate this yourself. 
Be rigorous according to the scriptures, not the news. Right? Well, this is what's happening now. It must be prophecy. Not necessarily. Especially if it's happening in the United States, which does not figure in end times prophecy really at all. And I would also remind you the moral lesson of this story. Do not be impressed by world religions, world cultures, world kingdoms. As the angel said, why do you marvel? What impresses you so much about that? Only be impressed by the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who's going to return to smash them all. Because to remind us what Daniel said in Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever.